chapter 2. The book of Ezra, chapter 2. I trust you had opportunity in the Lord's normal providence uh, to read through this chapter, as I mentioned last Lord's Day evening. We will not take the time to read every verse of this chapter. It is a lengthy chapter. Um, For any who might be concerned about that, we have read this together, this whole chapter in our consecutive readings through the Old Testament in times gone by. So, we have read this passage. Though I guess if you're anything like me, you probably don't remember that uh, as clearly as if we were doing it right here. But for this evening, we are going to read some of the opening verses and then move selectively through the chapter. So, Ezra chapter 2, and first of all, beginning at verse 1. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Reham, and Ba'anah. And then the remainder of verse 2 tells us, entitled, the next section. We read, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And then following three, verse 3 and onwards, we have the people listed either in terms of family connection or, as we will find in some of the later verses, not by family connection but by their location in Israel and in particular in Judah. But then we move down to verse 36, having listed the people, then we come to the priests. And again, the sons and houses of priests are listed for us in verses 36 through 39. And then we come to verse 40, and then we get the Levites. Again, we have a list in verses 40 through 42 of the Levites who returned. And then we move down to verse 43, where we have the temple servants. Again, a longer list, um, but much in the same pattern of family descendancy. And then down to verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. And perhaps we have here some of the longest and perhaps least familiar names to us, and we will come to a reason for that as we come to the sermon. Uh, Verse 58, we read in summary, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And then as we come to verse 59, we read the following were those who came up from Tel Malar, Tel Hashar, Kerub, Adan, and Emer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And so again, we'll come to the issues with this group of people who had come from certain places, but they could not prove their lineage in Israel. And then as we come to verse 64, we'll take up the reading here as it comes to conclusion. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. 
Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they, had, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is, in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minars of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Amen. And thus far again, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. There are some difficult chapters in the Bible, and Ezra chapter 2 is one of them. It begins, as we have seen, in a relatively straightforwardly way. Um, it lists 11 names, and even though some of them are challenging to pronounce for us, uh, as we read of them in verses 1 and 2, we soon conclude, as we begin to continue to read, that this is just the beginning of this long, long chapter. And by the time we get to the end of it, we have over a hundred more names given to us in the remainder of the verses. Now, already, whether you have read it prior to coming to service or not, you may be asking the question in the stillness of your mind, if not through your lips, what is the point of all these names here in Ezra chapter 2? And many have been skeptical about the value, the benefit of such a passage in Holy Scripture. Of course, this is not the only place where we find long lists of names, uh, genealogies as they're technically called, but many times when Christians come across them, they somewhat furrow their brows and go, what is the point of all this data? Well, we might ask, first of all, why, why might there be such an attitude? Um, after all, we all know 2 Timothy 3.16, do we not? All Scripture is God-breathed out and is profitable. As the apostle tells Timothy, that includes this chapter and all these names. This is the God-breathed-out Word. So, so, why might anybody, but in particular, why might any Christian be somewhat skeptical and wondering, well, what's the point of all of this? Well, one reason very practically may well be is that um, history and historical data is not the most exciting of things to everybody. Uh, for many people, history is simply not interesting. Now, you may be an exception to that, and if you are, I'm glad for that. Um, but I think um, for, for many, uh, they go, you know, history is not really my favorite subject. It's sometimes I'm compelled to study it uh, in my education, but I'm glad to be done with it. It's lists of names and places and all of those things. Um, if you were to compare, I think, today, if you gave people a choice between studying history and following their sports team, I don't think we'd have to think too long which people would prefer. Um, sport is far more popular uh, today than history. Nevertheless, people are, are interested somewhat in history. Um, if you were to talk to them about their own history, their own family history, then at least there's a spark of greater interest than perhaps in more general uh, historical things. Um, so, there may be many reasons practically uh, in the hearts and minds of um, men, women, boys, and girls why a list like this becomes quite challenging to read in the Word of God. But let's come back to the question. 
why is this long list of names in the Bible? And not only is it here, but actually this same list is repeated almost identically in its entirety a century later in the book of Nehemiah. Um, so not only is it in the Bible once, it's in it twice. And that ought to at least clue us into this is important. How do we come to that sort of question in any part of the Bible that we might find difficult? Um, when we ask, why is this here? The first thing we should be thinking about when we ask those kinds of questions of any part, any chapter, any book in the Bible, is to ask it against the backdrop of understanding and confessing, if we are Christians, that the Bible is first of all a book about God. It's not so much about these people and their relationships to one another and anybody else for that matter. The Bible is first of all a book about God. And therefore, the safest rule of interpretation of any passage when we're asking why is this here and what is its purpose in the Scripture is to ask the question, well then, what does this teach me first and foremost about God? And then it may teach me about other things, about man, about all sorts of other uh, things. But the Scripture is first and foremost about God, and that is true of this passage, though that may not seem so self-evidently obvious at the beginning. Let's come to the summary we're going to use for this chapter. It is my intention to uh, split this into two sermons, otherwise it would be very long. And I'm conscious, particularly in evening service, when we're towards the end of the day, um, that would be a wiser thing to do. What is this whole chapter about? Is it so that someone can find themselves as an ancient Israelite in amongst this community? Is it so that they can trace a lineage and prove that they are, um, uh, are ethnically part of this community? Not first and foremost. Ezra chapter 2 and verses 1 through 70 demonstrate the faithfulness of God. That's why all these names are here. The faithfulness of God to His covenant with His people. These are real people in a real place, in a real time. And in what is happening here, God is fulfilling His covenant promises and fulfilling His redemptive purposes. And we can see it even in these details where if we come at it, as I was explaining to someone just before we came to evening service, it is so easy to get lost amongst the trees in the midst of the forest here of all these names and numbers. But to try and get us up a little bit in the helicopter above all the trees before we descend down into some details, this chapter demonstrates the faithfulness of God to his covenant with His people. We're going to think about three relatively straightforward things this evening. First of all, the covenant God. Secondly, problematic numbers. And then thirdly, some interesting details. So first of all, then the covenant God, verse 1. As we saw last week in 538 B.C., Cyrus, king of Persia, issued his decree permitting the people of God in exile to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. We read of that in chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. That decree was in fulfillment of earlier prophecy that God had given to His people through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, the exile was a time of considerable testing and trial to the people of God. Some of the exiles died in captivity. Those who were of advanced age when they went into captivity never returned. They died in Babylon. Others 
were so successful, as we might say, in acclimating to their new place, their new environment, that when the decree to return was issued by Cyrus, they decided to remain where they were. That might surprise us. Surely every Jew would want to return to their homeland. But as we will read in this passage and subsequently through uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, it becomes clear quite quickly that that was not the case. Some were very comfortable and quite happy to remain in Babylon. But even against those somewhat discouraging things, as the various families no doubt assembled to discuss the decree which Cyrus had issued to allow them to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, there were some at least among them who, according to the text, Ezra 1 verse 5, whose hearts God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And so against that backdrop, we come to chapter 2. These are they whom God had stirred up to return. And here we have a description, a very summary description in many ways, of their return. There are many details that uh, are omitted here from this return journey. If you're anything like me, you probably have a hundred questions that Ezra does not even begin to address. Um, well, how long did it take? And which route exactly did they go? And how were they feeling? And were there any difficulties? And how did they overcome them? Um, Ezra here mentions nothing in those uh, ways of the detail of the journey. So many questions that are not addressed. But nevertheless, Ezra makes his focus the thing that is particularly relevant as this speaks to God's redemptive purpose, as we talk about redemptive history, God fulfilling His plan. And so what is the thing that God thought relevant and Ezra considers relevant? It's people and their names. Who are these people? Now, for some of the exiles returning, the motivation to return was political and ethnic. It was the opportunity for them to be identified again in their own land as Jews and particularly of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Um, as one commentator puts it, he says, for them, quote, the genealogies are a guarantee that Israel is not adrift in a vacuum of that present generation, but has security and credentials. And as long as Israel can name names, utter even their precious sounds of their names, it has a belonging place which no hostile empire can deny. Um, there is some uh, emphasis to that because as the family groups are identified after it's the summary at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, in that verse summarizing, uh, the, the people are identified as the people of the province. Well, what province? Well, Judah by this time was a province of the empire of Persia. Um, and so, some measure of national, ethnic, even political identity was important to some of them. Uh, perhaps we can identify with that. Um, some of these things are important to us in our day and generation. Um, they go up to make something of who we think ourselves to be, how we identify ourselves. But what was important then and what is important now for the people of God is such things are not the most important thing when it comes to the identity of the people of God, who we are nationally in this world, who we are ethnically in this world, who we identify with politically in this world, are of some importance, but not ultimate importance for the Christian. Ultimately, he or she is a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
which will not pass away. After all, Judah remained a part of Persia and had no independent authority of her own, even though the Jews were allowed to return. And therefore, for the returning exiles, even though some of these things may well have been in at least some of their minds, the greatest motivation to impel them to return was something more than just, again, having a clear physical demonstration of national identity. They were the people of God. That's what these names point to first and foremost. They were the people of God to whom promises had been given by the covenant-making God. Promises that could not be fulfilled in the land of Babylon. Exile signaled judgment and even abandonment had that exile continued. But their return now, and even the orderly way in which it took place, God superintending it, even moving the hearts of mighty kings and rulers of empires, that signaled in some way at least that the promise that the covenant God had given to Abraham those many, many, many years before, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the night sky and the sand on the seashore, that that promise had not been forgotten and would not be left unfulfilled. The promise we read of in Genesis 22:17 that God promised by covenant to Abraham, God was here fulfilling. Now, He wasn't going to complete it here. This is but another step in God's purpose of redemptive history. But we are to see it in those terms, that ultimately this is not just working to reestablish, as we would call it, some geopolitical nation upon the face of the earth in some piece of real estate in the Middle East. God is the covenant-keeping God, and here He is at work to fulfill His covenant promises. Well, then that brings us in the second place to problematic numbers, problematic numbers. And here we need to look at a lot of verses from verse 2 through verse 64. We read in summary that the number of those who returned is 42,360, verse 64. Now, this number is somewhat problematic and challenging because depending on how good your math is and how good your mental math is, if you were keeping uh, total as we went through some of this, and particularly as you read it in all the details yourselves at home, the individual numbers that are listed here, totaled up, come to 29,818. So there's some difference of 12,542. Um, I can do that because I wrote it down, so I didn't have to rely upon just doing some mental math here. So how do we account for this difference? Well, if you read the commentaries, you'll see a number of plausible suggestions. I think the most likely reason, though we cannot be dogmatic about this, is that the individual family names here are not complete. They're intentionally incomplete. And the purpose was not so you could add all of them up and say that comes to the total. Um, the exact composition of the various groups of those who returned are not all recorded here. But we can be reliably assured that the total is accurate. Ezra reports the number, 42,360. So does Nehemiah, 42,360 in the first return. And even in the non-biblical book of First Estras, which you will find in the apocryphal writings, which are not part of Holy Scripture, but nevertheless are a historical record of this event, record 
exactly the same number in first Ezra, so 42,360. So that is the total number, um, though the composition of that is not recorded here in all of its details. So that should tie up um, that problem for us. But there's a larger problem here that's not to do with the math and making sure all the numbers add up in all of the details that we've got everything specified here. The bigger problem with this number, 42,360, is that it hardly adds up to the number of the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore, do they? I mean, it's a lot. You know, if you started, boys and girls started counting 42,360, it's going to take you a while. One, two, three, four, and so on. But if you were able to count the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, it is much more than 42,360. So how is God fulfilling His promise here to Abraham? Yes, some people are returning, but it seems but a fraction, a very, very small part of what God had promised. Um, one commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, the number of the people of God was at this point in history no greater than the population of a small town. And uh, that might resonate with us. So you might know of a small town of about 50,000 people. Uh, the town I come from originally uh, is about twice that size. It was about 100,000 when I was a boy. Um, so, again, it's the great contrast between how small that seems in comparison with the promise that was made. The commentator goes on to say, though, quote, but oaks from little acorns grow, the proverb says, and God is not about the business of deprecating smallness, end quote. God is not saying here that He is fulfilling it in His entirety, and this is all it's ever going to be. And so, we should not judge God's faithfulness to His ultimate fulfillment of His promise by the steps and stages. That's in the wisdom of God. Uh, even as we look down through all of church history, the church often, comparatively speaking, has been very small sometimes uh, compared to the world's standards. Uh, think about in the New Testament era, before Pentecost, the entire church amounted to more, no more than about 120 people. We read in the book of Acts, Acts 1.5. Though, of course, in the great um, events of the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church that day. But 3,120 is still not a lot of people. Why is it that um, God works uh, in times and places, uh, fulfilling His purpose with seemingly small numbers of the people of God? Well, in such times... Often those numbers are symbolic of what God is doing both in what we would call that winnowing process, that pruning process, whereby God in judgment removes the chaff from the true wheat. And at the same time, God is yet preserving. Um, even in the darkest hours for the church, when it seems there may be a risk that she's going to go into extinction. She's not going to survive at all. And yet, even in God's winnowing process, there's His hand of sovereign, providential preservation, that He will preserve a remnant, as Paul would call them, according to the election of grace, Romans 9, 27. God is faithful to His promise. Then, with small numbers, 42,360, the day of Pentecost, 120 before, 3,120 afterwards, and even in our day, when perhaps in our part of the world, in the Western Hemisphere, it seems that the numbers of the professing church are small, dwindling perhaps. God is faithful then, and God is faithful now. And so, as we read in the book of Zechariah, brethren, we are not to despise the day of small things. 
God knows what He is doing. We all have that desire, I think, if we're honest, to want to feel part of something really, really big, and as if everybody around us, where we live, where we work, wherever we go, um, we find the people of God. That's the, uh, the dominant um, group, wherever you are. And sometimes God is pleased to have that be the case in places and times in history, but often not, and this was one of them. And so, we come to this relatively small number with these seeming problems, small comparison to the promise that God had made. But nevertheless, how does Ezra refer to this covenant God, the God of His promise, fulfilling it even in days of small things? Well, as we come through the book, and we'll come to this in more detail, but chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10, Ezra refers to God as the God of our or the God of your fathers. He is the faithful God from generation to generation. And so, when this even seemingly small number of people return to Judah, to Jerusalem, their ministry is not one brand new from scratch, even though they may seem comparatively small. Their work and labor and ministry will be a continuation of that which had gone before in Jerusalem. God is continuing to work out His purposes through His people. And we ought to be encouraged by that, that we too, as the people of God, are in that stream of God fulfilling His purpose, that as we work today as Christians to be faithful, and as we seek to labor together as congregations, local churches, of the one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a company of people in that continuation of the stream of God's um, providential working out of His great plan of salvation. As we look back, we can be the beneficiaries of faithful men and women who went before us, those who endured hostility and opposition, perhaps in circumstances we would not choose to think about um, we may think of some of that in Tuesday evening as we think of the time of Reformation. But nevertheless, we uh, see that it's important that you see those connections uh, historically in the church. We're often very focused to our own time and space, aren't we? Uh, the now where we are, as if this is the most important time and the most important place. And yet, when we realistically look at ourselves this evening, we are not many, are we? Many empty seats. So we say, well, how significant can this be then? One commentator put it like this. He says, quote, and this is from the modern day, present day. He says, quote, we may not be able to amass large numbers of many thousands of people, like those that are found at great sports events, or the great rock concerts. That's how you know he's a modern commentator, right? I don't think John Calvin would ever have written about sports events and rock concerts. But there is more significance to the small gatherings of believers in churches than the masses that gather to watch football or baseball or go to see their favorite band. End quote. That's how we are to see this, with the eye of faith. Even though we may be small, even if we are in a day of small things, we are not to despise that. God is at still at work, and He is faithful. And what may seemingly be problematic, well, that's not very big to what God promised. It is not ultimately a problem at all. God will fulfill His promise in His time and in His way. Well, then that brings us in the third place this evening to some interesting details. And again, we look at the whole chapter pretty well here up to verse 64. When you look closely at this list of names, then we see highlighted here in the text some interesting and significant things. First of all, this is not just some random group of people. This is a community of the people of God. There is structure here to this group. We see that, first of all, that there are 12 leaders. Uh, 
The 11 in Ezra 2 verse 2, and together with Sheshbazar, who is mentioned in chapter 1 verse 11. Of course, 11 plus 1 makes 12. That should start ringing bells in our minds biblically. The number is always significant in the Scriptures, 12. Here these leaders are representative of Israel as a whole. Of course, after the exile, they look now more like what we would say the church than a whole nation as they'd been previously. There may be significance to that. One commentator says, quote, Already God seems to be anticipating a time when the nation will fall into the historical past and the people of God will gather as a people called into fellowship with one another and in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. But there is community here, 12 leaders representative of the people of God, not so much thought of as a theocratic nation as they had been under Moses, but looking forward to the professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a communion of the people of God. Secondly, in all of these details, particularly in verses 36 through 39, we have the list of the four clans of priests. They total 4,289. Um, if you think of that in terms of the total, 42,000, it's about 10%. Um, that's a significantly large proportion of the whole were priests. Um, again, that ought not to surprise us. Uh, it would seem that the vast majority of priests returned with this single purpose to see the temple rebuilt, that worship according to God's commandment and pattern would be restored. And with those uh, goals and motives in mind, then that ought not to be then a great surprise that a great proportion of priests make up this whole of the number who returned. And then thirdly, we have the list of the Levites, verse 40 and following. Um, these are the priestly helpers, we might say, those who aided the priests in their work. Um, they couldn't begin their ministry immediately, of course, until the temple would be built. Uh, like others who would serve in the temple, like the singers and the gatekeepers, um, they were not going to start on day one when they returned in that ministry until the temple could be rebuilt. But nevertheless, they returned in faith that indeed a temple would be rebuilt and that they were there to serve according to their calling when that was completed. Notice here how much of what they would have done um, was not always particularly glamorous. Again, if you read the rest of Scripture as to what these helpers did in the temple, it wasn't always the high profile, the upfront, as we would call it, activities. Um, some commentators call them the menial and often unseen things. But even with that, these helpers returned, wanted to be part of it, wanted to serve God even in these small, seemingly insignificant tasks. Why? Because they saw what they did as more important than any other personal gain that might have otherwise been on their agenda. I'd rather be a doorkeeper remember the psalmist says, in the house of God, than dwell in the tents of the wicked. To, to have the highest profile in this world, to be the one who has the most followers on social media, to be king of Persia, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. And we have some such people here returning and willing and just waiting for their opportunity to do so. Fourthly, then we have the tasks of the temple servants, verses 43 through 54, and Solomon's servants and sons of servants, 55 through 57. Again, reading the rest of Scripture, um, if we were kind of grading the tasks, we might think that what they had to do was even more mundane, even more menial than the helpers to the priests. 
These were those that had been given by David to assist the Levites. We read of that later, Ezra 8 verse 20. Um, it's interesting to note here that almost over half of them have somewhat foreign names, not um, Jewish names here, not Israelite names. That suggests that they had come into the service of the temple, the original temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, possibly as prisoners of war in David's great conquest during the period of the Davidic monarchy. Um, perhaps these were the descendants of those and those whom Solomon, we read, had pressed into forced service, 1 Kings 9, 20 through 21. However, the details of that, what is clear here, some generations later from David and Solomon, these people, even with these foreign-sounding names, were numbered among the people of God. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Um, we don't know all the details, the way in which God had ordered this, but somewhere along the line in the lives of these people, they had come to believe in the one true living God of Israel. Um, and God had called them, received them, and incorporated them into His people. And they too would serve God, even in seemingly um, not very attractive, not very flash, as we would say, in dramatic ways, but nevertheless would serve to the glory of God. And then there's one last category. There are those who cannot accurately prove their descent. We read of them in verses 59 through 63. They can't prove their descendancy either to Israel generally and specifically for some of them to the priestly tribe of Levi in particular. Now, what's interesting here, they're all permitted to return and to count themselves as members of the covenant community here of the people of God. But in the case of the uncertainty of their membership of the priestly class, if they cannot demonstrate that they're truly Levites, um, then they are ordered not to reckon themselves as such until that can be established. Um, what's the importance of that detail? Well, because that's what God had said. People who serve in that role, in that capacity, had to be qualified in this way at that time. And that still mattered. And if you could not demonstrate that, then you were not simply to presume, well, I think I'm okay. You know, maybe I remember my father telling me or my grandfather, and, you know, there's some kind of just family law, L-O-R-E, about that. That was not sufficient. And until those things could be established or not, by the process of, you may remember from the Old Covenant days, the Urim and the Thummim, which we don't know exactly how that worked, but that is a means by which God um, uh, helped His people to establish things by decision. Um, until that could be done, Ezra 2 verse 63, they could not presume to um, begin to think they were going to operate in that capacity. Again, a lot of detail. Let's try and bring this to summary as we close. What do all these interesting details, significant details, teach us? I think one lesson is this, that service in the church of Christ need not be glamorous, high profile, to use the language of our own day, flash, and kind of um, got all the glitzy lights and all the sound effects. It need not be that to be acknowledged by God and to be commended by God. As we think of our service in the Lord's church in our own day and generation, not at a physical building as would be rebuilt in Judah, but as part of a spiritual temple built up of living stones, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone, our service is not necessarily glamorous. We may not be in a high-profile church in a big city center location. We may not gather thousands as may be gathered in the 
local football stadium. But that does not mean that our service is not acknowledged by God and commended by God. Realistically, our service may be such that not even sometimes you may think the brethren acknowledge it. You may think, well, I do my best in the local church, you know, but nobody seems to say thank you, or nobody seems to know that I do that. I come and do it, and I go away, and nobody knows. It's something that needs to be done, but it's not particularly glamorous, whether it's things like cleaning buildings, whether it's preparing um, so that we have a place in which to gather, uh, moving some things around from time to time, whatever it might be. These are not glamorous things, brother, are they? Um, you know, you, you don't uh, get your um, profile on some glossy magazine or on the front of some big website uh, by serving in those kinds of ways. But like then, so it is now. That is not necessary for that work to be acknowledged and commended by God. The reality that we see here as we see in the text and as we think by way of application for ourselves is nothing that we do for the Lord to His glory and for the good of His church is ever left unnoticed by the Lord. It may be unnoticed by brethren. I may not notice it when you do it. You may not notice it when I do it. Um, we should try our best to express our gratitude um, to each other um, as we serve the Lord and as we benefit from that, whatever those things may be. But even where that's not recognized by anybody else in this world, it is always noticed by the Lord. Remember what Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name is noted and praised. That's not very really glamorous, is it? Giving someone a cup of cold water. Matthew 10 verse 42. And so our great motivation in serving the Lord then and now is what? To get the praise of men? To have the adulation of men? To be one of those first people who everybody wants to call or talk with when they uh, want counsel or advice so we can say, well, I must be really important then because I'm in such great demand. That's not it, is it? What is our great motivation in serving God? It is pleasing our Master, the Lord Jesus. It's not the adulation and approval and the recognition of men. What did Paul say? We make it our aim to please who? To please Him. And the Him there is the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. And he says, we aim to do that in everything, however small and insignificant. And so ought we. As we close this evening, want to leave you with one other thought. There's lots of details here. 42,360 people, leaders, priests, Levite helpers, temple helpers and servants, but amongst all of those, whatever roles God had given them in His time and place in the return from the exile to continue His purpose to be fulfilled, but in all of those 42,360 people, there was not one of them who could ultimately bring the covenant promise and blessing to fulfillment and culmination. Not the leaders, not the priests, not the helpers, or anyone else. Under God's hand, they would reestablish the types and shadows of the Old Testament. But what did they do? They pointed forward to one who would yet have to come, who would do that. And those people must still patiently wait in faith, not for a type and shadow to be reestablished, not to keep rebuilding a physical temple when it gets destroyed, 
and to reestablish Levitical priesthoods, as we thought this morning, offering again and again sacrifices that can never take away sins. But they must patiently wait in faith for the great antitype, as he's called, the great fulfillment of the types and shadows, Jesus Christ himself. The one who is the seed of the woman. The one who is great David's greatest son. And that's their calling. It's not going to be it once they get the temple foundation in. It's not going to be it once they get the temple rebuilt. When we get to the book of Nehemiah, it's not it once they rebuild the walls around physical Jerusalem and make it more secure against the enemies all around. It will be it when God says, the fullness of time has come, and He sends forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. And so, even as we think of the um, specifics here, and what it can teach us by way of application of their lives of faith and our lives of faith, In the end, it points to Christ, not to them and how well they did or how badly they did, so that we might look at ourselves and say, well, how good and how badly are we doing? Those are all helpful and profitable things. But in the end, they are to point us again to Christ, the one who was to come, that He might be the faithful, true Israelite, the true Son who would fulfill all things and give His life a ransom for many, for whom we give God great thanks. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the book of Ezra, for the time in which You continue to fulfill Your purpose, even in days of small things, even through details of seemingly menial and mundane tasks of the people of God in Your worship as You had commanded it. But yet they lived by faith even as we live by faith. They looked forward to the first advent of our Savior Jesus Christ. We look back in fulfillment of that, but also look forward in anticipation of His great return, His second advent. Grant us to live by faith even as they did to be sure and certain that You are the faithful God of covenant, the God who will fulfill His promise. Hear us and help us, we pray, even as we walk this week as pilgrims through this wilderness world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.